HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Sonia Chopra is a writer, editor, and strategist whose work exists at, at the intersection of food and culture representation in media. The director of editorial strategy at Eater, Sonia also writes a weekly newsletter, Namaste, about Desi culture, and is currently working on a middle grade novel. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's actually start with Namaste, which I think is like a perfectly portmanteaued title and <laughs> so indicative of you and your work. Can you just talk about, um, if you can wax poetic, about what the newsletter does, what it means to you, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I started the newsletter a couple years ago, and I have to admit it's it's not so much weekly anymore. I'm, I'm a little lazy about it, unfortunately, although I love it very much. Um, and I was noticing that there were just so many cool things happening in the South Asian space uh, inside the United States and across the diaspora, and then also, of course, in South Asia. And I like couldn't keep track of all the links anymore. There was just so many cool things happening. And also around that time, um, there were some rumors that Mindy Kaling was pregnant, and I wanted a place to kind of track it because I was really excited. And of course... Um, her relationship with BJ Novak is kind of really um, gossiped about across the internet after the office and things like that. And oh so, my god, wait, is that Ryan? Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. I didn't know that. So okay. they dated for a little bit in real life, um, and they're good friends. Like, he's the godfather of her baby, Catherine. Um, but there was a lot of speculation. Was he the father? Was he not? And I don't love, uh, you know, it's, it's her personal life, and there's really no need for me to be obsessed with it. But at the same time, she was one of these huge icons in my life for so long she she was so representative of the south asian um like diaspora for so long and she was one of the few people especially five six years ago so it was really exciting to kind of get to like stalk her every week and and see okay what's up with mindy kaling let's just like talk about um some movies she's been in or talk about her new show champions at that time that was a new show so it was it was a place to kind of like have a little fun and talk about pop culture um and also kind of track like 
wild things that were happening in, in the world of turmeric and golden milk, which in 2017 kind of was hitting this heyday, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. And um, as a South Asian who grew up drinking Haldidud, turmeric milk, every time I was sick, uh, it was funny to kind of see it at all the coffee shops that I went to in Brooklyn for $7. So it was a place to kind of hate on that and celebrate other things and just kind of collect all the cool things that were happening across the diaspora in one place so people could see. This is a really exciting time for us and, and it feels like finally, like finally we're here, finally we get to do this stuff. So that's the newsletter. Um, I have a good time with it. I, I love to put that stuff together and it's so exciting to feel like people are starting to really see South Asians in the United States, which is just exciting. Mm-hmm. I actually want to hear your take on golden milk. Um, I was <laughs> speaking to, I believe her name is Sana, who um, founded Diaspora Co. And she was just kind of saying like, the heck, you know, like we've been <laughs> drinking this for so long. But then also, I guess if people are going to profit off of this, it should be the people whose culture it is from. Um, and so how do you, how do you feel about it? That's, I think, exactly how I feel. It's so exciting to see Diaspora make this turmeric and, and be so successful and, and get, have such an internet presence and have so many people kind of start to understand that. And I think Sana does such a good job explaining how she gets the turmeric and talking about India and always kind of couching it in these like very thoughtful terms. Uh, there's a spice company called Spicewala out of Asheville, North Carolina, which is, I grew up in the South, so I love the work that they do. And they just launched a golden milk spice so that you can go to them to buy any spices oregano cumin um, garam masala like all kinds of different spices and now also they have this blend that's turmeric ginger um, maybe black pepper maybe some cardamom and you're supposed to mix it with milk so it's it's them profiting off of this Mm -hmm. thing they call it golden milk they don't call it aldilud and it's so funny and the marketing has been so good and already they said i saw those guys um last weekend in nashville when i happened to be there for a conference and they said yeah already it's a bestseller so people are it's well it's I guess it's silly to me still that you know you can go into a coffee shop and spend seven dollars on on Hollywood which is something that is so easy to make at home and is considered the way the way I think about it it's like home food um but it's cool that these people get to profit and that we're kind of flipping the flipping the script mm-hmm. and so um let's telescope a bit outwards were you always writing about food writing about culture for a long time, um, I, I started at Eater about seven years ago. I was part-time in Atlanta at that time reporting on restaurants. And seven years ago, you know, the food scene was so different. I'm vegetarian, and in Atlanta, especially at that time, it was all burgers and steakhouses and things like that. And I used to get, I hid, first of all, I hid the fact that I was vegetarian for a really long time from my coworkers, from my bosses, um, and also from, you know, people in the restaurant industry. It wasn't something that I felt um, was appropriate for me to share if I wanted to be taken seriously Mm -hmm. the same way I think many of us as women are careful about sharing our ages and making sure that we look a certain way Um, and now that's like silly to even think about right like now I think the conversation has shifted and the way that people talk about food is so much more inclusive and the way that our restaurants um, in Georgia in New York like kind of across the country the way that people put together menus is much much more thoughtful so uh, yeah I've been I've been thinking about food and culture for a really long time seven years at Eater is is a long time especially for media so it's, it's, it's nice. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think for you um, exists at the intersection of food and culture? What do you think one illuminates about the other and vice versa? It's interesting. A lot of people say um, that food is culture. And, I, and I, I hesitate to agree with that sometimes because I think it's a little limiting. Um, I produce a show. I help produce a show for um, PBS called No Passport Required. And that show is all about immigration and food. So it's all it's looking at food through the lens of immigration in specific American cities. So like Vietnamese food and culture in New Orleans or Ethiopian food and culture in DC. And when we were talking about like taglines for the show and things like that before the first season aired, 
we had that conversation a lot. Like, can you say that food is culture? Is it limiting to just, if somebody really understands Indian food, do they understand Indian culture? No, right? And I think um, we always have to be careful, especially as journalists, to make sure that we're not limiting things, but like, or not um, looking at something with too close of a lens so that we're forgetting the whole picture. But otherwise, I think that it, it like food is also such a good way to look at a culture, and I think it's it's an interesting way to kind of understand foodways and and how communities kind of come together and and how they gather, which is interesting mm-hmm. and important. Yeah, and I guess to complicate or maybe reify what you're <laughs> saying, um, how does food kind of connect us or maybe distance us from our ancestors? Yeah. Okay. So I've been, th- I've been I think I mentioned this to you earlier. I've been thinking a lot about ancestry in general and and what an ancestor is and and how you connect to your culture specifically. Um, in the United States, so I I say that I'm a second generation, um, or I say I'm like you know a second generation Indian, Indian American. My parents were both born in India, emigrated here, met in the United States in, in grad school, and I was the first in my family to be born here. And a lot of my friends take issue with that. A lot of my friends say, no, we were the first to be born here, so we're the first generation. And so it's well, what do you think about that? What's your take? Wait, can you can you? Say it again. Yeah, say it again. Um, so I say that I'm second generation. I'm second generation kid because I was the first in my family to be born here. My parents both came in their early 20s. They had whole lives here. They went to grad school here. To me, saying first generation kind of just erases that, erases mm-hmm. their whole life here. But many people that I know, many journalists, many of my friends, they call themselves first generation if they were the first to be born here. Mm-hmm. So it's still pretty like up for debate, I think, yeah. and the lines are pretty nuanced. And also, I think depends on how you say it, like the phrasing that you use. Um, but when it comes to ancestry, it's so interesting to think about generations and think about culture and think about people moving to America because like when do you like when do you stop connecting with your culture personally and, and have to have to be like, okay, well my parents came from here so I'm gonna take this time to learn more. So I think Italian Americans are a really interesting example of that. This is maybe for most people, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Italian mm-hmm. in this country, and a lot of my friends who have Italian ancestry, Italian heritage, they have lost total touch. They're not quite sure where in Italy their parents are, where their families are from. They're not quite sure like what that food looked like, and and they kind of have to like seek that out and, and find the records and find the history. And I think that's really interesting, but I, I think it's complicated. And I don't I don't want to ever feel that far removed from my culture, and, and I don't think I will, but. My children, who you know, will be half Indian, half American, like or half white, like whatever they um, they might have to, right? Or their children might have to. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to preserve that and how to like I don't know, just like think more about ancestry in general and, and make sure that it's something that you're retaining for future generations. And it's complicated. I don't have an answer, but mm-hmm. yeah. To rewind, I actually I totally agree with you. Um, I am, I guess, technically the same generation as you. Um, my parents immigrated when they were like teenagers mm-hmm. um, but I also think how I answer depends on who I'm with I think when they're people older than me or if they're immigrants themselves I do not claim to be first gen yeah. but if it's um, to make things easier for other people asking about my Asian American experience I'll often say like yeah I guess I'm technically first gen because I also feel kind of guilty about losing that like intactness of self or yeah. connection to my history and my culture um, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the times I say my parents are immigrants. I'm the daughter of immigrants mm-hmm. and just kind of like skirt around it altogether, mm-hmm. which is fine, I guess. Yeah, I also think, though, that 
the third and fourth generations while they're having to actively seek out those ties. I feel like they're afforded that distance, and so it's a lot more enjoyable. And maybe you know, there's no there's no baggage, right? Yeah, to, there's no guilt. There's no guilt, and so um, which I've talked about this to other first gen or second gen, whatever we are, <laughs> um, Asian Americans, and they're all like, "What do you mean, what guilt?" You know, and some people don't really see that guilt, and so I was just wondering if you might have a thought on that. Where does I, that guilt come from? Yeah, I don't. I'm I'm close to my family and I'm close to my culture, and I think a lot of the times for people like us, a lot of the times for children of immigrants, there is this really heavy expectation that's put on them from their parents, from their grandparents, from their aunties and uncles. You know, that they're expected to be a very certain way because, um, well, we'll talk about this when we talk about the Punjabi Mexican story, but. Like so many Indians came to this country on skilled labor visas, right? So education and and skills that translated across kind of um, countries and across disciplines were so important. And I think that value of education, and of course, that's not the only reason that education and, and um, very specific fields like medicine and engineering are so important to like Asian parents, I think in general. But that's part of it, right? Skilled labor visas, like that was the only way that people could get into this country, and our parents don't. Like, they want to make sure we're set up for success in the future, and they want to make sure that nothing um, nothing bad can ever happen to us, and that's a form of love, of course, but sometimes it feels like they're just demanding that you be a very certain way and that you can't kind of follow your own dreams, and I think there's a guilt that comes with that and a frustration and attention, and a lot of people, um, like, struggle with that, and a lot of people struggle with kind of, like, breaking those ties. Um, but I feel, I feel lucky in that sense, and my parents have always encouraged us. My brother's a graphic designer, like I'm a journalist. Our parents have always kind of encouraged us to follow our dreams, so we're lucky. Mm-hmm. So while food is not culture, um, I do think <laughs> it provides a very easy access point for um, us to kind of gather and talk about these difficult things, but how might food media distance or connect us to our past? I or think not? It's, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think I'll speak specifically about South Asian writing and right now I think I don't like to say we're having a moment but kind of we are and I, and I think it's sustainable and I think we'll feel similar enough in similarly enough in a couple of years but right now there's so much writing about South Asian food and so much prominent writing and so many prominent amazing writers and um, I think sometimes there can be some some feeling like okay well we just published this Indian American story last week so like we can't take this new pitch from you and and there's kind of like from the from the publications there's this feeling that there's not enough space to write you know to run three or four Indian stories in the course of two months but like burgers you know burgers are fine like Mm -hmm. even ramen ramen stories are fine because everybody across the country like understands ramen now I'm kind of losing the thread of your question um but I think I think with South Asian food in general, we're, we're seeing a lot of personal essays. It's a lot of, okay, this is my experience, and this is what this meant for me, and this is, um, this is kind of how um, I view this thing through my lens. And I think the next thing that we have to do is, is more reported stories and more kind of looks at, at, at a community at large, and that's the way that we're moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. Um, I feel like... Um, as the PBS show is so aptly titled No Passport Required, mm-hmm. I feel like food media kind of allows us to travel to different places, places like Roberta's where you see these pictures and everyone has the same experience there, yeah. no matter the race or class or whatever. Um, but I feel like there is something kind of dangerous in that where you can feel like you can reduce a culture or cuisine so easily. And so how do you think food media decontextualizes or um, exposes us to other cultures? 
I think food media does both. So I think that often it, it does strip things down to the very basic, like, oh, you're going to Jackson Heights and it's like you're in Bombay, which is like reductive and I mm-hmm. think pretty awful. We we try really hard at Eater where I work to not ever say things like that. Like you don't walk into Little Italy and feel like you're in Sicily, right? That's mm-hmm. not real or true or accurate and anybody who's been to Sicily would never say that. So I think there is a lot of that and, and that it, I, I don't think it's malicious. It never is. Like we're, we're all still learning how to talk about food and we're all still learning how to talk about different cultures because, you know, 10 years ago we weren't doing it at all in, in this way, which is so important and so inclusive. Um, but I think, I think language and just being thoughtful about what you're saying and remembering who you're writing for and, and making sure that the, like, Perspective really matters, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think with food media, it can be really difficult sometimes for a lot of publications to remember that. Like, we, like you know who your audience is, right? Like, in terms of just looking at the data, you know, okay, our audience is on the coasts. Like, our audience, like, makes this amount of money. And so it's so easy to cater stories to what you know those people like, even though we have to, like, we have a responsibility to our audiences to challenge them and to push them and to make sure we are being inclusive and make sure that we are reaching new audiences and that if people from the communities that we're writing about read the stories, they're proud of them and, and they're excited and they're not like, oh, but but that, but Jackson Heights isn't India, you know? Jackson Heights is, and also, like, it's not even that Indian anymore. It's more Nepali. Like, so mm-hmm. I think there's all these things. We have a heavy, heavy responsibility to remember that perspective matters and remember that we're telling stories you know, that that are not just for, like, a very white, very liberal, very rich audience. Mm -hmm. So in that same vein, um, how do you feel like cookbooks kind of complicate this? Because they're not able to adapt so quickly, right? Um, You're filing the manuscript a year in advance, and when it comes out, it's just kind of a dead thing that goes out into the world. And how do you feel like people are using them as kind of, like, travelogues or as passports, et cetera, et cetera? That's a good question. I think that... um, that cookbooks are really interesting and I think that cookbooks are a really great way to kind of give a snapshot of what a culture is like um, on the author's terms so there's a little bit less um, you know you're not you're not fighting so much of like an audience question you're not fighting so many of like the things that we have to deal with in food media every day you're you're creating like a single thing but it's huge right so you get to tell all these different stories and you get to showcase all these different things and all these different recipes which each have their own head notes and it can be a really powerful tool I think that so many cookbooks um, I'm thinking specifically there's an author and and chef named Asha Gomez um, from Atlanta where I grew up and she had a couple really beautiful Indian restaurants in Atlanta and she put out a cookbook that's I believe it's called My Two Souths and she she's from South India, from Kerala, and, and then she spent a lot of time in Georgia. And it kind of talks about the um, how those the parallels between South, like South India and the Southern American like region. Uh, and it's so fascinating to hear kind of tell these stories. And but in the same thing, she gets to talk about like train food in India, and she's talking about like what she ate when she was growing up. And so cookbooks, I think, are such a beautiful way to get to tell stories about a very specific thing in a really broad way, which we don't get to do a lot of um, in media when, you know, you have a thousand words and you have to deal with ad breaks and, like, you're thinking about space. So I think they're really exciting. Um, I think that there will be more and more, like, single-subject cookbooks, which I think is which is interesting, but I'm excited about them. I think, I think more and more people are looking to cookbooks to learn about culture, right, because you do get a lot of writing and you get a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... To your point, while Asha's book is so beautifully from her own perspective, um, what we briefly emailed about is how cookbooks are sometimes used in exploitative means or just the reception is entirely unlike what was intended. And so how do you think, is there a way to protect against that? 
I, I don't know. I, I, I hope so, and I think we'll get better at it as more and more cookbooks come out. But I, I agree with you, I think, and I know we talked about this, I think that... Um, there's just so much more we have to do in general to make sure that people have the space to tell their stories and and we all need to work on it more this is meant to be eaten on heritage radio network we'll be back after a short break This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York cider houses and kombucha makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hayrides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. That was a ton of lead-in to talk about the article that I'd originally wanted us <laughs> to talk about. Um, so, Sonia, you wrote an article on the kind of intersection of Punjabi and Mexican cuisine and culture. Can you give us a synopsis of the article? Yes. So the story is about a community that came together in the early 1900s um, in California, mostly a little bit, uh, like mostly California. Um, and it, what happened was, there were, you know, 2,000 Indian, mostly Punjabi, mostly Sikh men who came over from India um, between, like, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and they came over as, as laborers, they came over as farmers, and then um, in 1917, the border shut down, and they weren't able to leave, and they weren't able to, well, I guess they could have left, but then they wouldn't be able to come back, um, and they weren't able to bring their wives over, bring other people over, so they were just kind of stuck in this new country um, where they didn't really know anybody besides themselves, and they weren't able to own land, and there were miscegenation laws, so they weren't able to kind of marry outside of their race. And they, what they did was they um, they ended up marrying Mexican women who were considered brown. I'm putting it in quotation marks. You guys can't see me. Um, they were considered brown, and so they kind of skirted the miscegenation laws. And these Punjabi men and these Mexican women, I believe there were about 400 marriages um, from like 19 mid 1910s through like 1930s, um, and they formed these really close knit communities. And it was kind of you know they. Uh, somebody would know somebody's sister and then would recommend that that sister talk to like their friend. So there were, there were these really, really close-knit communities and they all kind of married and, and formed this really strong bond. And um, what my story is really about is the food that kind of came out as part of that. So what the, the men were working, they were laboring in the fields and the women were at, at home, like as, <laughs> as happened at that time. And, and 
they were learning how to cook Indian food that their husbands kind of talked to them about, but it changed, right? So they weren't able to get the same spices to make all the dishes. They could just get the curry spice that was available there. So they used that. They they brought in some of their own um, inflections and their own flavors, like Spanish rice and things like that. And so the story just kind of follows that and, and talks to a few people and, and just makes, like, just kind of explores it more. Mm-hmm. So why was this, why were these men immigrating in the first place? They were immigrating because they they needed money. They were looking for new opportunities. They were looking to see, you know, what else is out there, like what, how can we just make more money and how can mm-hmm. we have a better lives for ourselves and our families? Mm-hmm. But why Mexico? Well, they moved to California. Okay. So, yeah, so they moved to California and, I, and ah. I think a lot of it was farming. So in North India, the industry is, there's a lot of farming that happens there. And I know some of them came up um, through like through East Asia and then over and maybe we're in, in Seattle and Portland for a while or I guess like in Washington and Oregon for a while too. So there was some fishing and there were some other industries and there was some steel work, but it's predominantly farming that brought them mm-hmm. over because that was kind of the shared skill that happened. Mm-hmm. And how would they converse with their wives? Um, carefully, I think, it, I think it was really difficult. And a lot of the research that I saw there, you know, there was this language barrier. And, and English, of course, was the shared language. And um, because the men were working in the fields with a lot of Mexican laborers and Mexican farmers as well, I believe they picked up some Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that I spoke to for this story didn't know that much Punjabi. So Punjabi, which is the language that these North Indians spoke in India, um, that wasn't as much being uh, being like transferred to the children because it was the mothers who were at home, and so Spanish was the language that kind of passed on. And so it seems like most of the men, either they, either they converse in, in English or they learned Spanish. Mm-hmm. And who are the people that you talked to for the story? So I talked to a couple people. Um, I talked to a woman named Amelia Singh Nanarvala, who's amazing. She's in her mid-80s now, and her mom, Rosa Singh, was Mexican-American and married a, a Sikh Punjabi. Um, and she then married a Farsi, like somebody who's um, like Persian but from India. And so she just has a cool history in general, and, and she thinks very thoughtfully about kind of like cultures coming together in community, which which I was interested in hearing. And I talked to a lot of other people who had similar stories. So they're their parents or their grandparents were the ones that had these marriages. And, and so it was interesting to hear their perspectives. And it, I I was expecting to hear a lot of things that I didn't hear. Like, I think that's the value of reporting instead of personal essays, too, to kind of go back to that, is that we have all these preconceived ideas in our heads when we hear about Punjabi Mexican food and, like, what could that be? And there were a couple articles about curry chicken enchiladas, and then I found out that that was a myth. Like, that didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. One, article, one place wrote about it, and then it just got picked up and picked up and picked up. But... Um, Amelia Nenervala, who was the person who was like quoted as cooking those, or her mom was quoted as cooking those, she was like, no, we never, <laughs> that's a mistake. Like, that never actually happened. Mm-hmm. So reporting is important. Fact-checking is important. <laughs> but also, I think, yeah, it was it was like, just so fun to talk to these people and learn more about kind of the, the food history and, and how they think about their cultures. Mm-hmm. So what were some more preconceived notions that you had, and how were they kind of debunked? I guess, I mean, it sounds so romantic to me that these two cultures kind of came together and, um, you know, formed this thing. And and because I think so much about food and because I think so much about how food changes and, like, how different cultures kind of, uh, like, affect food, I was picturing all these, like, cool menus of, like, all this hybrid food and, like, things like the curry chicken enchiladas and... And uh, that wasn't the case. Like, the women cooked Indian food or they cooked Mexican food. And every so often, maybe there would be things like, they called them curries, which is not really a word that we use in India. But as language changes, I think that became, like, a pretty easy catch-all for things like the the chickens inside the gravy. Um, 
So they would maybe have Mexican rice with the curries, or maybe um, every so often they would, you know, use rotis to eat chili or eat beans with. But for the most part, they were cooking the food very separately. There was one restaurant that was owned by a Punjabi Mexican man. He was Muslim, and so they didn't have any pork in the restaurant, but they would um, they would do these things called roti quesadillas, and it was the Indian flatbread with Mexican ingredients, I think shredded beef and cheese inside of it, mm-hmm. and things like that. So there's a few things like that, and they like those are the things that feel so kind of like romantic and interesting and cool to us as food people. But um, by and large, you know, they were cooking Indian food, and they were cooking Mexican food, mm-hmm. and they were separate. Because Amelia couldn't be here with us. <laughs> what were some of the lessons you learned from her? How, how did you hear? I'm just curious to know how she considers her own identity and maybe culinary identity. She, I was kind of hoping um, that she would tie my story in a neat little bow and be like, yeah, I consider myself American. I consider all this food American, which is kind of like the narrative that we uh, second-gen kids like to push. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, no, you know, my dad was Indian and my mom was Mexican and I'm the child of them. And so she was, she didn't really have like this neat kind of way of thinking about it, which shouldn't have surprised me, but kind of did. Um, it shouldn't have surprised me because like, I don't know how to talk about myself still. Like it feels hip- like hypocritical a little bit to, to say, well, I'm Indian, but also I'm hundred percent American. Like how dare mm-hmm. you call me Indian? Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, that was, that was an interesting thing. Just, it was a good reminder that we still haven't quite figured out the language around like cross-cultural um, communities. Um, let me think, what else did she teach me? An interesting thing was that her family was Sikhs um, and they spent some time in Texas. And when India partitioned in 1947, which was when the Indian, um, when the British left and kind of India split into Pakistan and India, two different countries, it was really traumatic and really awful and and caused a whole ton of, I mean, it's a whole separate conversation, but that was also felt in the United States, in this community, because they were mostly Sikh, but there were some Muslims and there were some Hindus, and and she told me some interesting stories about how the the Hindus wouldn't go into the Muslim houses, right? So there, if there were the women would come in and they would they would cook and like the children would all hang out, but the men wouldn't like eat food that was cooked in a Muslim house if they were Hindu or vice versa. So I thought that was an interesting way to kind of see how the history or how the, this like important moment in time that that affected so many people in India also was was kind of affecting people in Western in the Western United States. Mm-hmm. Does Amelia have children? She has children. I think two. Um, I I would I would have to confirm. Um, and I believe they're still living in California. Um, and like I said, her husband is Parsi. So I, I asked her about them a little bit, and I and I think they identify with being Parsi. Um, mm-hmm. So, but you know, she's cooking Indian food for them, and yeah. They, mm-hmm. Yeah. At the top of the episode, we kind of talked about how we use food to kind of preserve our connection to our heritage no matter the generation and I wonder just how Amelia is passing the food down if it's as romantic as we think like this is Mexican Punjabi cuisine yeah. or is it really just like this is what your dad wants to eat tonight this is what you know we're gonna eat tonight etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah this is where you know we have beans right now so like that's what we're gonna cook and I think a lot of it is um you asked me before like how I think about localism local locavorism mm-hmm. I can't even say it um and if it's real or not and I think that uh, what we see from communities like this is that they are taking the food that they know, but using local ingredients, which which is a form of you know eating locally, but with a kind of global mindset. I guess is how we would say it today. They weren't saying that in the 1920s, um, but I think that's really interesting too. How we think, how people as people immigrate and like as you know as cultures move and communities move and shift, like how their food changes based on where they are, is is also pretty interesting. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's another episode idea, <laughs> like assimilation food versus yeah. local quote unquote mm-hmm. food, all about marketing copy. <laughs> um, so yeah, we talked about how, um, so Asha has that book to my two Souths, mm-hmm. right. And how there's kind of this comparison between Southern food and South Asian food. And then there's also, um, I'm so often hearing that like Mexican and Indian food is so similar and it totally makes sense that they're being fused. But I've always thought that that thought is just very reductive or dismissive. And how do you navigate that? I mean, as carefully and as thoughtfully as you can, I think. I think that, well, yeah, I mean, we think so much about this. How are you labeling yourself? How are you labeling your food? How are you labeling your restaurant? So uh, last week when I was in Asheville, I had the opportunity to hang out with a bunch of Indian chefs who cook in restaurants in the American South. And it was a question that I asked them, like, how do you talk about your menu? Because you are, it's mostly Indian food, but you are, you know, you're using kale instead of whatever greens you would use in India, or you're kind of like fusing these two things, or you have a shrimp and grits on your menu. How do you talk about it? And it's changing. And even they were saying, like, the way we talked about it five years ago or 10 years ago is different than the way we get to talk about it now. And so I think people are still figuring it out, but it's like, it's something that everybody's very aware of. We have to kind of be really careful about how we talk about things. And I think also um, be really specific. So not not make any broad sweeping generalizations about all the brown chefs cooking in the South, right? But instead being like, okay, well, this restaurant in Lexington is doing this thing, and so this is how we're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think we can learn a lot from that as we write, too, and as we edit stories and as we assign stories, making sure we're not making these blanket assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so do you believe that, because you said you don't believe in locavores <laughs> at all, um, which I, too, don't agree with, um, do you think culinary appropriation really exists at all? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think um, Hollywood turmeric milk is a, or uh, what do they call it? Golden milk is a good example of that. Like, that is a thing that was completely divorced from its meaning by people who were looking to profit off of it and, like, did not acknowledge at all that it was Indian, South Asian in root, right? And maybe other cultures also also have a history of, of making turmeric milk, Hollywood. I'm not sure, but um, I think that's a really perfect example. And I don't, like... I think anybody should be able to make it, right? But I think we want to be thoughtful about that and you want to kind of make sure that you're understanding where it's coming from and teaching your diners too, right? Or your your audience, wherever it is, like where the food's coming from, why it's important, like how these things shift and change. That's important. So like in general, I think appropriation is such a sticky conversation topic and I think that it's so easy to be like, no, like only Indians can cook Indian food and like, and that's reductive too. And like it, India is so big and there's so many different kinds of Indian food, but um, anybody should be able to cook anything they want, but you have to remember where it's coming from. And you have to, I think as chefs, as writers, um, we, we have a responsibility to communicate that to our audience. That was in quotes, um, wherever, like wherever that is. Mm-hmm. I guess to reframe or maybe try that again. Um, I feel like, like you said, with the immigration of the Punjabi men to California, um, this hybrid quote unquote, mm-hmm. cuisine just kind of emerged and there's no romantic notion of, yes, we're like merging our two yeah. cultures together and creating something new. And I think that is something that happens or has happened again and again throughout history. And that's just how cultures and cuisines evolve. And so, you know, appropriation may not exist in that sense. I agree with that. I think that um, our cultures and our communities are changing. And as as second gen kids, like we're seeing that too. Like I'm not marrying somebody from South Asia. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm marrying somebody whose family comes from Ireland and Scotland, but is pretty divorced from that now and has been in America for a really long time. And like, what kind of food are we going to cook at home? You know, like right now we cook 
with whatever ingredients we get from the farmer's market or from Whole Foods um, or wherever that wasn't sponsored. And, um, uh, you know, we use the spices that we that sound interesting to us. And, like, that's how we will cook if we have children. And that's how we will cook, you know, if we leave New York. And I think that that happens. But, you know, immigration is, is such a hot topic right now. And, and there are so many cultures changing and spreading in so many ways. And very naturally new foods will come out of that. And that's really exciting. I think that's cool. And that's something that... Um, that I look forward to like learning more about wherever it happens, however it happens. But we do have this kind of like quick, I think especially as journalists who are always looking for the next thing, it's so quick to be like, oh my God, that's awesome. Let me write about it. Like this is a huge deal. When really it's like, no, that's just how people eat, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, I want to kind of go back to how you were describing you and your partner cook. Um, I think that is so... I feel like that is how many of us cook nowadays, where there's it's kind of all cuisines but none at the same yeah. time. And so, just curious, what do you think that comes from? Um, where do you think that's heading? That kind of cooking. That's a good question. I don't. I don't know. I think. Um, I think it's exciting to know that you kind of have like a really a global kitchen, a global pantry at your disposal, no matter where you are now. Which I which I believe is true. I know in New York we get access to a lot of ingredients and a lot of spices that not everyone everywhere does but by and large you can get garam masala in grocery stores now you know I think there's like frozen Indian food um, in grocery stores across the country so I think that it's good kind of going back to food as culture I think the more and more people that are exposed to kimchi like they understand now okay well you know this comes from here and so maybe next time I see a book about this region like I'll pick it up and read it or at least flip through it and I think it's a really good entry point and I think Cooking globally is a really good way to just to remember that the world is so big and so diverse, and that's really important. Um, but like, I didn't cook Indian food at all at home until I got um, an electric pressure cooker because I was so afraid of pressure cookers, and so I never wanted to to cook Indian food because it's, it was terrifying to me. And now I have an instant pot, and now you know I <laughs> also not sponsored, not sponsored. I tried to say electric pressure cooker and I failed. Um, and I, it's just so much easier for me to cook, and and I think cooks like home cooks like me today are also really lazy and also really busy and so I think that's part of it too is that we don't have the luxury of of um spending all day you know thinking about these thoughtful meals and doing these things it's just kind of whatever is in front of you you're gonna make it Mm -hmm. yeah so I guess armed with our global pantries I want to touch on this idea that you brought up in the article if just briefly about the idea of ethnicity being kind of like a flexible Mm -hmm. concept can you kind of unpack what that means um and kind of the ramifications that has for us today and maybe the, the food that we're trying to cook. Yeah, I mean, tell me if this is what you, what you want me to be saying, but I think that as we become more global as, like, as Americans, we are losing this, like, very specific cultural thing, right? Like, if we, like if you are half Indian or if you are half Japanese, like how do you talk about your food and how do you talk about your culture and how do you, kind of like we were saying earlier, how do you balance like both being American and being Indian, right? Like what is that and and how, like it's it's flexible and it's shifting and like you can identify in lots of different ways and we don't really have a clean way of talking about it yet. I think flex, like being flexible is, is the cleanest of those ways. Um, but I think things are changing and I think like Gen Z, the future is going to figure it out for us. And, and I'm really looking forward to like learning more about how people talk about, you know, being American and what that means. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect way to end our episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sonia. Thank you. This was great.
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.